So why do you worship? Why did you just get up this morning and gather together and worship? You do know that it's impossible not to worship. I know that's a double negative, but it's impossible not to worship. Last Sunday night after the Super Bowl, there was a show hosted by James Corden with celebrity and international judges called The World's Best. Anybody see that show? Am I the only one who, wears, who, who watches American stations? Okay. Well, I'll surprise you then. Um, I didn't watch the show for long because it was past my bedtime, but um, I was amazed at the literal kickoff of the show. They had this group from Korea, a Taekwondo group, and, and they're called the Flying Korean Taekwondo Group. And um, they, they would like kick, I'm not going to do that because I pull a hammy, but they, um, <laughs> they, they, they kick through boards like 30 feet in the air. It was crazy. Like it was just amazing. You could YouTube this, you can see this. And it was, it was jaw-dropping. And when the group was finished, their routine, the, the judges leapt up, all 50 of them, and they started applauding. Now, this wasn't one of those things on the game shows where, you know, you have to actually have the cards, you know, people standing up, applause now, right? This was, this was worship. This was praising for an incredible feat. Unlike what happened at the Super Bowl where some praised and some pouted, Everybody worshiped. You see, we are created in the image of God. We cannot help but worship. We were made to worship. Animals don't worship, but we do. Animals might run at you and they might show affection like my dog was, but they never worship. They're not like, wow, God is amazing. They don't worship in the same way we do. Maybe the rocks cry out. Maybe animals, in a sense, worship, but not in, 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 a, in a sentient way that we do. It's impossible for us not to worship. When we see something praiseworthy or something that impresses us, we clap and we shout and we tell others about it. In fact, that's an apologetic. Evolution can't explain that. It's amazing. we got to say, i got to tell you about this. Did you see this? Did you have a worshipful experience this week? It's impossible not to worship. So this begs two questions. Who are you worshiping? And second of all, why are you worshiping? Today's sermon, we're going to focus on why are you worshiping, and that's actually going to help us answer the first question of who you are worshiping. And all this is done in view of the Lord's Supper. In fact, you know how usually we have a reflective time around the Lord's Supper? We're actually hoping this will be a rejoicing time. A time where you're just amazed at what God has done. You know, you think about the last phrase that Paul uses as he was giving his instructions to the church at Corinth. And he says that we were to remember the Lord's death until what? Until he comes. And Jesus is coming again, isn't he? Do you believe that Jesus is coming again to earth? That should give you much hope. I have a dear friend here who's one of my coaches, and he recently lost his beloved wife, who was just the life of the party, wasn't she? And there's no hope unless Jesus is coming again. And that God is really good. 
This is why we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's the same reason why the returning Jewish exiles rejoiced in Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. That's going to be our text today. I'm going, to, I'm going to, first of all, give us some background before we get into Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Because I, I wonder whether we don't rejoice enough because we're not freed enough. See, the exiles in Ezra 3, the, these uh, Jews had been returning from exile after 70 years of being under captivity, and they came to reestablish worship of God. But I think that there's many of us who don't rejoice enough because we're not freed enough. There are too many things that we are still attached to in our old life. We will not give them up. And so they're dragging us down so that we can't get our worship high to God. The Jews are freed. 70 years. 70 years of captivity. I want you to be free. I want you to be free from sin. I want you to be free from bitterness and unforgiveness. Where you actually today say, Lord, I'm going to finally let that go. I'm going to forgive this person. I want you to be free from financial debt. Maybe you need to tackle that and say, that's my first priority. I need to tackle that debt and that, that biggest debt first. I want you to be free from bondage to Satan through addictions and anxiety. And I have good news for you that Jesus can do all of this for you if you will surrender to him and you will follow him in his ways. I'm going to read this passage in Ezra 3 in just a moment. But first I want to give you the background. The Jews, they came back after a long and dangerous journey from Babylon. And the first thing they did was they went back to their hometowns. They probably built some gardens just to sustain them. And then they got to their real priority, which was worship of God. They all went to Jerusalem and started building an altar unto God at the site of the temple. Ezra 3 verse 7, just to give you context. Actually, I'm going to start in verse um, I'm going to start in verse 3 and just read a few verses here that give you context. They sat the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, and as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings... And the offerings of the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings. Do you, do you see how many times burnt offerings is used here in this passage? To the Lord. From the foundation of the temple, the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrrhenians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa and according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. That's the context. The people were offering burnt offerings to the Lord. Now, maybe, maybe in our Bible reading, we gloss over this. Or maybe you're so familiar with your Bible that you are apathetic to animal sacrifice. When I was in India, I saw Hindus sacrificing goats to their gods. And I got to tell you, when you see animal sacrifice, it changes you. You do not forget it. It's in your heart and mind. When you see that 
think about it. When you see that little baby goat or lamb, and it's humanely slaughtered on an altar, you're like, wow. I love goats. I've held goats in Israel. I've seen goats in Canada and the U.S. and in Africa. If Lori and I lived on a farm, we would have goats. We think it's like the coolest thing that goats can like just, just, just eat your whole Christmas tree after you're done with it. Like we just think that's, that's just amazing. We like goats. So why sacrifice, sacrifice all these goats and sheep and bulls? Well, permit me to be a little crass so I can confess my uncertainties. And I got to tell you, I've been, I've been going to church like my whole life. And I know about animal sacrifice. But I, I've been thinking about it lately, and I'll put it this way. Why does God like barbecue? Have you ever thought it that way? Just to put it into modern terms. I mean, I love barbecue. I love the smell of barbecue. It makes my mouth start to water. Maybe some of you... Your mouth starting to water, even thinking about barbecue, and I just helped a lot of people go home and maybe have some barbecue. I understand that barbecue meat usually happens on special occasions like Canada Day or Victoria Day weekend. That makes sense to me. But what I haven't figured out is why does God like barbecue? Why would he create these cute little animals, these innocent little animals, and then ask them to be sacrificed and burnt on an altar. You ever thought about that? Like, it sounds pretty crazy. You go out and tell that to, you know, people who never engage with the Bible, and then you say, yeah, it, God was asking people to burn these baby goats and sheep on an altar. And you're like, what? That's really weird. And, and to top it all off, the Bible actually says this, that such aromas were a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And this happened like way back from almost the beginning. In Genesis chapter 8, this turn there, it's the first book in the Bible, Genesis 8, 21. We find that, that Noah has been rescued. He's been um, protected through the flood. And what does he do as soon as he gets off the ark, as soon as he gets off the boat? Genesis 8, verses 20 and 21, this is what Noah did. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird. In fact, God actually put extra animals on the ark so that this could, this could actually happen, which is an act of faith. It was an act of testimony that someday there he would get to worship God, if you think about it. And they offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, did you catch that? And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I ever again, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. This satisfied God. Uh, that, that whole idea of a pleasing aroma to the Lord is repeatedly mentioned in Scripture. It's found in places like Leviticus 1.9 and, and Numbers 18.17, just to name a couple. So why would, why would these exiles, after 70 years in captivity, come back to, to Israel? And one of the first things they do is they want to, like Noah, they want to build an altar to the Lord to sacrifice 
these cute little animals on it? Were they in a demonic trance from the shedding of blood as I saw in, in India? As Michael Morales explains animal sacrifice, he says this, the rite of a burnt sacrifice not only transforms the animal into an aroma pleasing to God, but also by that transformation causes it to ascend to his heavenly abode. Stated differently, the transformational burning was for the sake of transferring the animal and the worship vicariously through it from the ordinary earthly plane to the divine heavenly realm, to the ownership of God. In other words, the animals created a, a sweet smell on earth that the priest and sometimes the, the sacrificer would actually eat, like at Passover. But uh, the aroma also rose to heaven. This meant it was, a, it was really a fellowship meal between God and his people. But it was so much more. By accepting this sacrifice of a perfect lamb, God was in a sense seating the one atoned for in heaven. And this is why in Ephesians 1, 3, and 7, you have this peculiar phrase that we might understand when you read it. I mean, Ephesians 1, you can look in your hard copy of God's word. We also have it on the screen. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7 says, Blessed be... The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's amazing. In a sense, you're here, but you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've already got a place in heaven. I'm not crazy. I'm not drunk. I'm just reading what the scriptures say. And, but then in verse 7 it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Some are appalled at animal sacrifice. Still others are appalled at substitutionary atonement, that Jesus would have to take our place, that he himself would be sacrificed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. However, in just a moment, I'm going to show a video um, from the Bible Project, and it's going to show that the sacrifice of Christ does multiple things. The first thing that the sacrifice of Christ does is that it atones for our sins. It makes us right with God. At one. Think of that. Atonement. You are at one It's reconciliation with God. So that we could seat, be seated with, with God in the heavenly realms. That's the second thing that Christ's sacrifice does. It seats us in heaven with God in a relational and in a spiritual sense. And thirdly, it gives us fellowship or communion with God, which is why the Lord's Supper is called, not just the Lord's Supper, we call it communion, right? In a sense, we are eating with God. We're having this communion with Him. So I want you to see in this video, I think that this will help explain from the Bible Project more about animal sacrifice. Let's watch it. I think that video so well helps us to understand about sacrifice. And out of that sacrifice that the, the exiles made so long ago, um, we get to understand why they'd be so rejoicing. So finally, we're going to get to Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. And the, the goal after reading this, as you listen to God's word, is to sing and to eat with great rejoicing to the Lord. So please, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to read Ezra chapter 3. Verses 8 through 11. 
Now in the second year, again, you can look this up in the table of contents if you need to. Now in the second year after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, made a beginning. Notice that. They made a beginning. Beginning of worship. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Joshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising, giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Before you get seated, I know this is a long verse, but we're going to practice this the first half, okay? And that way we can get that in our small groups and our families keep working on this. So think of it um, kind of like a story. Let's read it. Let's read the whole verse together um, this first time. Ezra 3.11 And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Okay, we're only going to read the first half this time. Ezra 3.11 And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Okay, let's try to just get that first part. Ezra 3.11. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Okay, very good. You keep working on that this week, and um, let's. And you may be seated. So we've gone over the background of why they were rejoicing. Their sins had been temporarily atoned for. How much more should we be rejoicing as the people of God for the fact that our sins have been permanently atoned for? Here's the truth we find from this passage in a sentence sacrificing and building leads to worshiping God. Sacrificing and building leads to worshiping God. Or let's make it more personal. Sacrifice and build for God, and it will shout his praises. Sacrifice and build for God, and it's going to shout his praises. That's what we're hoping to do. The returning exiles took the time just long enough to rebuild their homes and take care of their families, but they didn't wait too long before focusing on sacrificing to God, as we learned last week. And in only only the second year back from exile, we read again in, in Ezra 3, 8 and 9, they began the work 
on the house of the Lord. This was not a finished work, but it was a beginning work. It says, now in the second year after their coming to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, and Jeshua, son of Jozadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and there's a key word here, all, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord, and Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers." I want you to, to get that verse. That's why I read it a second time. Get that in your heart and mind. There's a number of lessons we can learn just from these two verses. First of all, work began soon after arrival. Work began soon after arrival. Two, everybody worked, including the governmental and religious leaders. Everybody worked. So the first is, work began soon after the arrival. Number two, everybody worked. Three, young people worked on God's house. Young people worked on God's house. And four, this was a family project. The work began in only year two of the return. And that included Zerubbabel, the governor, as well as Joshua, the high priest. In fact, I love the phrase, and notice the word, all, all who came to Jerusalem from the captivity. This is over 40,000 people were working on the temple of the Lord. We know that from Numbers chapter 2 when you count up all the people. And so as Derek Kidner reflects, there was enthusiasm reflected in the all who came forward for the work, but there was a strict attention to the standards as shown by the double mention of the oversight. First of the work and secondly of the workmen. In other words, uh, if we could put it this way, everybody has a, a part to play, but they have to play their designated part. Everybody here has a part to play. But God is giving you specific gifts and abilities and talents. And you, you, if you don't use those gifts and talents, then the work's not going to get done. These workmen also began young and younger than what was expected. In Numbers chapter 4, 1 through 3, we find what the law was. And we find the minimum age for the, um, the Levites. And this is what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Koath from among the sons of Levi by their clans and their fathers' houses from 30 years old up to 50 years old, all who, who can come on duty to do the work in the tent of meeting. So it was only from 30 to age 50 that the Levites were to work specifically um, on the tent of meeting. But Numbers... Chapter 8, verses 23 through 24, required the minimum age to work in the tent of meeting. There's a difference between on and in in the, in the text. This is what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, This applies to the Levites from 25 years old and upward. They shall come to do duty in the service of the tent of meeting. But then how, long, how old were the people in Ezra's day? How old were the Levites? They were only 20 years old when they were working on rebuilding the temple. So what's the difference here? What's going on? Well, we know from Ezra chapter 2, verses 40 through 42, that there were very few Levites who came back from exile. 
they were short on Levites. And so when you have little Levites, you lower the minimum age, if I could put it that way. Let me apply these lessons to our situations at Temple. If you are new to us, we want you to jump right in in service to the Lord. We think that's the best way to, to get involved and to, to know one another, to serve the Lord. We are a volunteer organization. We belong to the largest volunteer organization in the world, the Church of Jesus Christ. We need you to serve. Where are you serving? Sure, it takes a while to get to know each other, and we have a six-month rule of regular attendance to work with our children, as well as key leadership positions requires time-testedness. But we, we think the best thing you could do is serving. If you're not serving, you're not really worshiping to the extent that God wants you to. Talk to one of our pastors. Talk to Pastor Dan. Talk to Pastor Jason at the back. They'd love to talk to you. Talk to one of the elders. The second uh, truth that we want you to understand in practical application is we want everybody to serve who calls themselves followers of Christ. We need the skills of the Zerubbabel's who have business and governmental expertise, and we need the skills of the Jeshua's who have religious experience and expertise. We want and need everybody to serve. We need people who are great with their hands and who are also great with their knees in prayer. We need the people who can run the jackhammers and we need the prayer warriors. We need everybody. We need everybody to be serving. Thirdly, if you are young and have the character and competence to serve, we will platform you. Do you notice why there's a lot of young people up here? We want them to serve. This is why children can become members of temple. This is why I wanted them to come up and I wanted them to pray today. Didn't it bless your heart for them to pray? Real genuine, authentic prayers before the Lord? No pretension? Sure, some people who are young are not going to become elders at age 14, right? But they can serve. Did you know that we have teenagers who are joining Pastor Jason and, and George? I think I saw George. There's George in the back, George Khalil, Honor Benevolence Committee. Did you realize that? As they try to care for the needs in the community, like, don't we need young people to attack homelessness? Young people can do ministry that really matters at Temple. We had a bunch of young people yesterday. For six hours, they were out at Food Basics getting potatoes and giving it to the self food bank. That's awesome. Thank you, young people. I just want to give you guys a hand. Thank you very much for serving, serving the Lord. The fourth application is this. Serve together as a family. Serve together as a family. Parents, if you want your faith to be contagious, take your kids wherever you go and serve. If you don't want to, just do it by yourself, okay? If you don't care, like, I just want this to be about me, just go and do that by yourself, Take your kids with you. I try to take my kids to the hospital. They know how to put on those gowns when, when some of you are all contagious, okay? We have those in frontline ministry who have their kids help them serve. And we call them junior frontliners. Did you realize that those junior frontliners, they're the ones who are asking our pastors to come and get baptized. In the next few weeks, we're going to have some people who are going to get baptized, and they're all young and they're kids. And we've been praying about that. 
So serve together as a family. Are your kids engaged in ministry? Don't you want to pass it on to the next generation? Look what happens in Ezra 3 when the people did these things, when they sacrificed and built. It spilled over into praise. And not just muted praise. Verse 10 declares... And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Trumpets and symbols make loud praises to the Lord, right? Aiden was wailing on those drums today. Praise the Lord. We are conscious not to blast you out of the worship center or to damage your ears, but God wants loud worship. We want heaven to hear. And yet notice the worship was still orderly. It wasn't out of control. They did things. Did you catch this at the last part? According to the directions that David, the king of Israel, had given. They followed the directions of the sweet psalm leader of Israel, King David. And then notice verse 11, our memory verse for this month. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. The loudest instrument the people used was their own voices. I love that Pastor Jason told us in our worship planning and evaluation this week. He said, the best instrument is the human voice because it's the one that was directly and is directly created by God. At Temple, we try to be spirit and congregational led in our worship. We want you to drown out the instruments with your voices. We want you to silence Satan with your loud praises to God. And we want you to sing songs of praise and thanks. This verse teaches there's two types of songs that were sung at that, at that time. Praising and giving thanks to the Lord. There were songs of praise. There were songs of thanks. So it begs the questions, what are you praising God for? What are you thanking God for? Shout it out now. This is not a time to be silent. What are you thanking God for? What are you praising God for? Salvation. Salvation. Amen. We've been, we've been atoned for through the sacrifice of Jesus. What else? Health. His faithfulness. Mike's wife. <laughs> Jude. Awesome. Yes. What else? Family. Love. Peace. Kindness. Grandkids. Help. Pardon? Food. Amen. Yes. Nature. Education. What? Heat. Praise the Lord, yes. So this is only the beginning of worship, okay? God has, God has given us so much to be thankful for. Let's go back to my original question. Why do you worship? 
It isn't just because of sacrificing and building, but because you have not only met the world's best, but the universe's best. And the universe's best is Jesus Christ, God's Son. And He is good. He is the only righteous one. And because of being righteous and perfect, he has made a way for us to have salvation that Phil mentioned earlier. We praise the Lord because he is good. God is good all the time. Exactly. His loving kindness endures forever. It is his, this loving kindness, his hesed love, his covenantal love that never fails us. God has kept his covenant with us so that we might have moments of, of temporary affliction like Irene and Angela have had as they said goodbye to Norm this week. But God still loves us and God is still good. And we see this most clearly in the sacrifice of Jesus and the new covenant he established with us. So let's rejoice and eat together with our great God and let's build a house for, for us to worship God in greater ways.